You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined with Manitoba and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? Well... In this episode, we're hitting the road in our Manitoba food history truck, heading to Steinbach to the Mennonite Heritage Village to cook with a special guest chef who also produces a food history podcast. Curly dock looks like kind of like long spade-shaped leaves, kind of a little bit curly and ruffled around the edges, and then sometimes there's like a big flower stalk shooting up uh, from the middle. But it's a biennial, so it takes two years to produce oh. the flowers. And it's really nice. You can cook with it. I like to make a soup. Okay. You blend up the leaves with some buttermilk, and you get this really nice kind of like tangy, Ooh. great, cool summer soup that's really like green and pretty and refreshing. That's Anna Sigrether, chef, podcaster, artist, activist, and food educator. Sigrether is known for her creative pop-up culinary events, as well as her podcast, Oxtails, which explores food history based on interviews and articles produced at the world-famous Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. One of her many passions is integrating wild foods into her culinary dishes. On this episode, Sigrether will be cooking us crepes aboard the Manitoba Food History Truck using a common wild plant with a not-so-common story as the main ingredient. Okay, so we're, we're making today some, uh, some garlic lamb's quarter crepes. So it's kind of a two-part recipe where we're going to make some crepes, crepe batter, simple crepe batter, and then we're going to fill it with uh, these lamb's quarters, which are uh, these greens that we have right here. They're, they're kind of wilted right now, but but they're still good. Um, And we're gonna saute these up with garlic and butter and salt and lemon. And we're gonna make a really nice uh, filling for the crepes. Cool. So uh, the first thing we're gonna do is we just need to, I'm just gonna sort of shuck or or strip off the leaves from the the stems because we don't wanna get too many of the big stems in here. So where where does this traditionally grow? Uh, Well, lamb's quarters, uh, they're wild cosmopolitan weed. So cosmopolitan weeds are plants that pretty much grow in in sort of like disturbed soil all around the world so usually found in parking lots or in back lanes or in in yards um so you can find these anywhere you can find these anywhere yeah this is and it's part of it's part of a really big family of plants called the quinopodium family of which quinoa is also a member oh wow so this is also this is kind of a feral quinoa it does produce seeds that look um similar to quinoa they're really really small you can see that they're starting to uh grow there There's just some little green, um, little green kind of like powdery seed heads on the top of this plant. Yes, Kinopodium album or Kinopodium berlandieri. Ah, I hope I got that right. Also known as lamb's quarters. Also, also known as pit seed, pigweed, fat hand, and goosefoot. So there are a lot of names attached to this plant. But for this episode, we're just going to call it lamb's quarters. Lamb's quarters grows mainly in disturbed areas such as yards and parking lots. It thrives around farm buildings near local concentrations of nitrogen and organic matter, like compost and manure. Lamb's quarters is also well suited to thrive in nearly every environment across the country, despite harsh conditions. It may interest you to learn that this annual plant contains as much iron, protein, calcium, and vitamins as you'll find in cabbage and spinach. Not only that, it's tasty if you're a spinach lover anyway. Cooked lamb's quarters kind of taste like tangy spinach. 
So a nutritious, tasty, edible plant that grows in abundance almost everywhere, yet it's still just considered a weed here in Manitoba. I'm wondering why no one has discovered this wonderful plant until now. We could be eating it instead of kale. Well, it turns out it had been discovered long ago. And not only that, at one point, lamb's quarters was one of the most valued plants in the human diet. For thousands of years, lamb's quarters or varietals of quinopodium were a prominent dietary staple eaten by humans across the globe, mostly in North America, Europe, and Asia. Originally, quinopodium is from the Greek words goose and little foot, alluding to the shape of the plant's leaves. Ancient Romans probably relating it to the August harvest season of Lammas knew it as Lamb's Quarter, which in turn led to the name Lamb's Quarter, which added an S at some point, and now we have Lamb's Quarters. From the Neolithic period on, Lamb's Quarters were greens for humans and feed for animals, only losing favor in Europe once spinach and cabbage were introduced in the 16th century. On this side of the ocean, for centuries, indigenous peoples of North America cultivated Lamb's Quarters on an epic scale. Archaeological evidence shows that the plant was extensively foraged in eastern North America as early as 6,500 BCE. By 1700 BCE, the plant had been domesticated by indigenous harvesters and remained a prominent part of their agricultural practices until sometime after European settlement. These plants played a big part in establishing the foundation of agriculture as we know it today in North America. That big shift over the centuries from foraging to seed planting and harvesting was done with lamb's quarters. Indigenous harvesters used lamb's quarters in a bunch of ways. The young leafy parts were used as a pot herb that was boiled or cooked, while others boiled and ground the seeds into flour to make a variety of foods, including meal and bread. There are a few reasons that would account for the decline of the use of lamb's quarters over the past century. In North America, it's theorized that the introduction of new crops like corn from Central and South America vastly changed the food systems of indigenous peoples, leading to a transition away from domesticated native varieties like lamb's quarters. And we did continue to grow it after after corn was introduced into the region, right? Um, but it it did drop off in importance. That's Karen Froman, Indigenous historian and instructor at the University of Winnipeg. She is Mohawk from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory in Ontario. Whether it be farming, gardening, or wild plant systems, Froman has a passion for all things green. She's a crucial voice in understanding how lamb's quarters went from harvested to overlooked here in Manitoba. We would have a number of fields, right? Our primary crops are the three sisters. Most people are familiar with that, right? Corn, beans, and squash, right? Uh, so we practice companion planting, and, and the three plants support each other. The corn takes the nitrogen, the beans put the nitrogen back in, and the squashes retain the moisture in the soil and prevent the weeds from growing. When we would plant the three sisters, you know, we would have other fields with, with other plantings. On the edges of the fields, right, was often where we would allow the so-called weeds to grow, right? So the purslane and the, and the lamb's quarters, right? You know, the edges of the fields is often where we would allow that to grow because both purslane and, and lamb's quarter like disturbed soil, you know, so they, they would just sort of grow naturally along the edges and we just leave it alone. While many indigenous peoples continue to cultivate lamb's quarters well after this transition, the majority of European and colonial farmers did not, regarding lamb's quarters as primary livestock fodder unfit for human consumption. Even the practice of using lamb's quarters for feed was eventually dropped when farmers discovered that the plant could be toxic to livestock if ingested in large amounts. For farmers of popular crops like soybeans, sugar beets, potatoes, and various grains, lamb's quarters' invasive nature made it a number one threat to be reviled and removed. 
In some respects, the story of why lamb's quarters and other nutritious wild plants are regarded primarily as weeds today has a lot to do with how traditional indigenous foodways were affected by colonialism. You know, we now spray all sorts of horrible stuff on a plant that we should really be leaving alone, right? Um, and probably looking at cultivating more, right? Uh, because it is so rich in antioxidants and vitamins and minerals and it's really good for you and it's super tasty. By eliminating the knowledge of these plants as having edible and, and or medicinal purposes, right, is just another way that settler colonialism erases indigenous peoples and superimposes that settler narrative of these plants being weeds, these plants being useless, these plants being detrimental to your financial ends line, right, is, is all part of that colonial settler process. For many indigenous peoples, land displacement coupled with laws banning them from participating in food production led to an increase of subsistence living and a reliance on practices like hunting and foraging. For centuries, indigenous harvesters had foraged wild plants for food and medicine, accumulating knowledge of prime harvesting locations, picking times, and drying methods. However, these practices were also greatly impacted by laws suppressing the rights of indigenous peoples to participate effectively in the stewardship of their traditional lands and resources. This subsistence lifestyle, right, has been forced by the state, you know, so through, largely through the Indian Act. You know, putting people here in the West on very, very marginal, very unproductive land, right, that often doesn't have the kinds of, you know, foods, plant foods and, and plant medicines that was traditionally used out here by restricting our access to leave the reserve, right, to access those kinds of, uh, kinds of foods, right, through, you know, private property laws or through, you know, we're not allowed to, you know, take plants or, or things out of federal parks, right, you know, which, again, were traditional territories, right, you know, so say Riding Mountain National Park, for example, right, you know, like Indigenous peoples were kicked out of the park. This has really restricted and diminished uh, our ability to, to hunt and to harvest wild edibles, and the knowledge is not being passed down to, to the younger generation because of these kinds of restrictions, right? And that's, I think, really, really critical, too. And while Indigenous peoples continue to struggle for the right to harvest wild food on traditional lands, the impacts of industrialization, migration, and lifestyle changes to the human diet left the practice of wild food cultivation largely inactive for much of the 20th century. It's astonishing how quickly that kind of knowledge can get lost, right? Um, I mean, really, it's, you know, a single generation. And, and that's something that I've discovered myself, right? Um, like for my family growing up, gardening, preserving, canning, knowing what was edible and what wasn't edible when we were out in the bush, um, that was normal. The post-war period, I think, not only for Indigenous peoples, but I think people in general, um, we lost the art of eating and, and cooking and what real food is, right, as things became commodified, as supermarkets and grocery stores became widespread, right? So. You know, the, the way that, you know, our food systems have changed is profound for both indigenous peoples and settlers. That is not to say that the practice of harvesting wild plants was something settler populations didn't engage in. Residents in rural areas all over Canada and here in Manitoba would routinely gather wild food during lean times past the Depression era. 
While novels like Yul Gibbon's Stalking the Wild Asparagus help revive some of the interest in foraging throughout the 1970s, for the most part, wild foods remain largely ignored as a credible source of food, even by federal government nutritionists who didn't consider wild berries, herbs, plants, and roots as legitimate medicinal or dietary choices even up into the 1980s. These days, during the summer, it's not uncommon to see cars on the side of highways as Manitobans take to the forest to forage for wild asparagus, berries, fiddleheads, and mushrooms. Foraging wild food has become increasingly popular amongst Manitobans, who have an interest in eating locally and sustainably. Wild edible tours and workshops are now common in parks and nature centers like Fort White Alive. Wild edibles have also opened up a whole new palette of tastes for foodies. Today, serving foraged foods is a growing culinary trend amongst high-end restaurants across the globe and here in Winnipeg at establishments like At The Gates and Fusion Grill. Wild edibles are in demand with companies like Forbes Wild Foods and Untamed Feast supplying foraged foods to restaurants and markets across Canada. And like many burgeoning food trends, there is a fair share of questions and criticisms concerning wild edibles, especially in the context of Canada's colonial legacy. Through her work as a chef, podcaster, and educator, Anna Sigurther has attempted to navigate some of these complexities of harvesting and serving wild food here in Manitoba. For Sigurther, her attraction to wild edibles started at an early age. There's like no good story moment about it. I just remember suddenly I was like obsessed with food in my, like maybe when I was around 11 or 12. I, I, I guess because I was such an outdoor kid, I would always be like making potions and like making little fake recipes outside using like twigs and branches and herbs and mud and whatever. Like mud, mud pies, so you're, kid yeah, thing. So you were foraging from the beginning. D yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and then I just started, I, I don't know, I, I also I think have like a pretty strong creative urge. So when I realized that I could make recipes, like I started making recipes, started learning recipes and started cooking probably pretty like, like adult meals when I was maybe around 11 or 12. I think, well, the first recipe that I ever made, I remember this, was called peanut salad, and it was uh, iceberg lettuce, lemon juice, peanuts, and then I was very specific that you had to take, you had to shell peanuts, you had to get the sh peanuts in the shells, yeah. and then you had to separate the peanuts from their little, like that inner little husk, yeah. and then I was very, <laughs> I really liked that husk, so you had to make sure that you took the husk separately, and then you like sprinkle it as a garnish on top of the salad. And that was my like, I think I was about five when I made that recipe or six. When I first started like get, really getting into cooking and like looking at websites for recipes and stuff, I wanted to learn kind of like the sort of the standard European fare, the basics, um, sauces, whatever. Um, and then I think as I got older, I got more interested in like learning foods outside of sort of that European canon. I got really interested in Indian foods. Then like, yeah, more recently I've been much more interested in kind of like land-based food traditions and recipes from them. As Sigrether's food education grew, so did her interest towards bioregionalism, sometimes called living in place. Bioregionalism often refers to an awareness of the ecology, economy, and culture of the place where you live. In terms of food, bioregionalism usually means making use of the ingredients from the local region with the ultimate goal of eating more thoughtfully and sustainably. The movement has led to more and more people discovering the utility of wild plants. Cool. 
Okay, so that's good enough. We Back on the truck, we're starting to make the crepes this. for a recipe. So what is next? Um, I think what we'll do next is we'll make the crepe batter because that's going to just take a few seconds. Cool. So I need so what some. You, what ingredients do you need? I need flour. I need milk. I need eggs, and I need butter, and salt. Okay, so we're going to measure out one and a half cups of milk. So this is just a really standard crepe recipe. Okay. Pretty easy, pretty simple. Um, we're going to take the one and a half cups of milk. We'll put two, crack two eggs into that. Do you need another? Oh, you're just going to do it. Get you a whisk. Yeah, so we just melted about a tablespoon of butter here on the pan. Yeah. Okay, so now we need one cup of flour. Can you measure that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So we'll just um, whisk this in. And just whisking in that flour. You can whisk it for a while to make sure to get out all those lumps. And then we could add about a, you know, like a half teaspoon of salt if we wanted. I mean, you can, the thing about crepes is that they're nice. You can make them salty or sweet, so. Yeah, pinch. This is how I measure at home anyways. I don't use, three finger pinch is a, about a half teaspoon. Oh yeah. If you could chop up about three cloves of, of garlic there. That would be awesome. And then um, we'll get that on the pan. The, fir the first pancake of the batch is always the worst and the last one's always the best. That's just how it goes. It's looking pretty good. So when you cook a crepe, you just want to wait. Basically, you just wait until it's cooked through from one side. And then when it's pretty much cooked through, you flip it. You just toast the other side really quickly. Because this is going to make a lot of crepes. I hope you guys are hungry. We have so much to make. Oh yeah, those are coming out nice. Never, no. Yeah. I've always wanted to cook on a food truck. While this may be the first time cooking on a food truck for Sigrether, the concept of a movable kitchen is something she's used to. In past years, Sigrether has co-hosted many pop-up dinners across Winnipeg under the moniker the Clandest Diner, the Movable Feast. These pop-up dinners for 30 to 40 people were staged at various venues in the city, with the secret location revealed the day before via email. While the pop-up dining experience may be something you're already familiar with, Sigrether's approach to cuisine is fairly unique. Her signature dishes often utilize wild edibles and even invasive species. Yeah, so we ran clandestiner from 2013 to 2016. That was like a pop-up dinner thing. It was, it was just basically a, a, a venue to showcase or like sort of share the culinary research that I was doing, often around like foraged things or just kind of like interesting and offbeat experiments with ingredients and also a way to get paid for it. So yeah, I would just cook food for people and they would come and go to a secret location, eat an interesting dinner and go home. I got really interested in, in invasive species. I decided I was gonna try to go catch some rusty crayfish, which are an invasive crayfish to Falcon Lake and the Eastern waterways. So I went to Falcon and <laughs> put in some like crayfish traps and then Manitoba Conservation like pulled them out and they were like staking it out. So I had to go back another day and got some crayfish and, and then me and my collaborator, Nathan, we made a, like a soup that had rusty crayfish in it. <laughs> but it was very illegal. There are places where you are allowed to eat invasive species as like a thing. There's this cool sushi place in I think Connecticut somewhere that uses invasive fish in their menu. So there, yeah, it's, it's, it seems brilliant to me, but the Manitoba Conservation has laws against it currently. 
Regardless of the hurdles, Sigrether really wanted to push culinary innovation through bioregionalism here in Manitoba. At the same time, she was also curious about some of the food traditions of her Scandinavian ancestry. And in 2015, both of these interests led her to a major center of the bioregional movement. Yeah, and I just got really interested in why, what, what were some of the traditions from the lands that my ancestry came from? Because, you know, the foods that I ate growing up that were that were Norwegian and Swedish and Icelandic and whatever, they were all recipes that were pretty much were in the last 200 years they were created. You know, Scandinavian cuisine. Most world cuisines have changed a lot in the past couple hundred years with industrialization and increased availability of trade and whatever, all of the adjacent technologies to cooking. I was just kind of curious to see what a more like land-based food tradition would be. So I went up to northern Sweden and went to go stay in a, in a Sami community. And Sami are indigenous peoples of the northern Scandinavian peninsula and, and Kola, Kola Peninsula in Russia and they're uh, semi-nomadic reindeer herders, and they've been living in that, that region for a really long time, and so I just, I just thought it would be really amazing to go and find a little bit more of a, a connection, because I think the, what the Sami people are presently practicing, you know, who are practicing their more traditional livelihood, is probably very similar to what a lot of my ancestors were practicing, you know, 500 years ago kind of thing. I was up there in 2015 for about three months, I uh, lived in this small village called um, Salto Lokta and I found this woman, it was, it was actually kind of crazy, I found her through this book I had on, on boreal herbal, it was called The Boreal Herbal and it's written by this woman named Beverly Gray and I found Lila, her name's Lila, I found her in this book, contacted her and um, she agreed that I could come up there and so I could help her cook and clean and in exchange she would like teach me about some of the traditional Sami foods and, and uh, practices. So it was, yeah, it was really beautiful. It's on this big lake, um, kind of nestled in these low mountains. It's about 24 hours straight north of Stockholm, so it's pretty far. If you go the same parallel in Canada, it's like Baffin Island. So I was there for the summer and the sun never set while I was there. It was just completely bright. Um, Lila has this cool camp where she has these um, big traditional Sami, they look like teepees but they're called lavu and they're made out of birch poles and canvas. Lila was pretty amazing, she, we would chop wood for her and haul some water and make fires and cook and clean and, but she would tell us lots of hilarious stories in her uh, heavily accented English <laughs> about growing up. Uh, in a very nomadic traditional family. Her parents were both, you know, very traditional people. They were very, like, they passed on to her the fire of, like, keeping her culture alive, and that's why she does what she does today, educating. She and her parents would move from the south in the winter up to the mountain highlands in the summer with their reindeer herds and let them, you know, follow them as they grazed, and uh, she would ride a reindeer when she was a little kid. They'd pack her on the back of a reindeer and just with all of their gear and... And it was just so amazing learning about the food, you know, like milking the reindeer, the reindeer meat, smoking the reindeer meat, all of the sort of like processes around slaughter time and harvesting the blood and the organs and not a single thing really was ever wasted, which Lila really carries into, into the present. There was a, quite a few things that I learned that I've like maintained. I think, um, yeah, obviously pretty hard to translate reindeer to 
here. So I think a lot of the things I've brought back have been like more like herbal and plant knowledge. The Sami use pine bark as a flower. They dry the pine bark and then they powder it and use it as a kind of like half flour, half seasoning in different flatbreads that they make, which is really cool. So I've done a bit of work with that here, harvesting pine bark and, and trying to make my own pine bark flowers. They also use birch bark flowers. There's a certain kind of lichen that um, is used as a, as a sort of flavoring, so, and that grows around here, so I've harvested it. It's called reindeer lichen, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been working a lot with that. It's one of my favorite flavors. It's really musty and like rich. During the same trip, Sigrether got a chance to intern at the world-famous Nordic Food Lab in Copenhagen, Denmark. In the early 2000s, the chefs of the Danish Michelin-starred restaurant Noma, René Redzepi and Klaus Meyer, released their book, Noma, Time and Place in Nordic Cuisine, dedicated to improving food culture in Nordic countries through bioregionalism. The book is credited as starting the new Nordic food movement. Following its publication, chefs from around the world started to forego classic culinary staples in search of local alternatives, integrating wild edibles into everyday cuisine. Over the past decade, the restaurant industry has significantly progressed towards bioregionalism and gastronomic experimentation. In 2008, the chefs at Noma also established the Nordic Food Lab, a nonprofit culinary organization that investigates food diversity, exploring the possibilities of bioregional foods through both modern and traditional methods. While interning at the Nordic Food Lab, Sigrether discovered an interesting way to change the flavor and structure of wild grains, a practice she is now applying here in Manitoba. Well, I think one of the things that I was the most satisfied about was when I was at Nordic Food Lab in Copenhagen, uh, a co-intern of mine, uh, this guy by the name of Santiago Lastra, he was doing research on nixtamalization, which is the process of cooking corn with uh, an alkaline substance that changes the chemical structure, gives it that characteristic corn chip flavor. So he was nixtamalizing other grains, Nordic grains, and I was like, oh, I wonder if anybody's ever tried nixtamalizing wild rice. So when I got home, I tried that, and it actually really worked. It, um, I got some calcium hydroxide from the El Salco, El Salvadoran market, and boiled it with the wild rice, and it worked. It like the the color changed. It got a little bit more like yellow, and the flavor changed. It got a bit more nutty, and then you could make like a masa dough from it. You could like it got chewy and sticky and you could like form it into tortillas so I ended up making wild rice tortillas and we did we served that at a clandestiner with um, pulled bison in the middle and some really nice stuff and then I was and then I felt this is neither my food nor my like practice also so I went to this indigenous food summit in Michigan and did like a demonstration and like was there for a couple days like teaching folks how to make how to nixtamalize wild rice it was it was so satisfying yeah like i just remember being like whoa this works and with that feeling of like wow i don't know if anybody's done this before back on the food truck we're eating our lamb's quarters crepes all right so now the now this is the best part oh well there's more there's more here this is for you um, well, the taste is pretty, it's nice and rich and sort of like minerally from the greens. You get that a little bit of bitterness from the lamb's quarter, although they're not a very bitter green. Yeah. And then of course you have that nice uh, rich mouthfeel from the butter, you have that nice tang from the lemon and a little bit of um, pungency from the garlic. Yeah. 
so it's together so nicely. Yeah, it's just it's really one of my favorite things because it it kind of encompasses all that you want from a nice bite of food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you you could serve this as like a little appetizer. Totally. While the result is very delicious, the chance of picking up lamb's quarters at your local farmers market remains very slim. For one thing, wild edibles like lamb's quarters are still considered nuisance weeds, according to the Manitoba government website. But an even greater barrier facing locally based harvesters is the cost associated with bringing foraged foods from the field to the table. In the early 2000s, the Northern Forest Diversification Center at Keewayton Community College, now University College of the North, in La Paz, attempted to establish a wild edible market here in Manitoba. The program provided training and marketing for mainly indigenous and Métis harvesters working in the boreal forest. While the center trained dozens of harvesters and recorded sales in the hundreds of thousands, the center ultimately closed from lack of grant support and investment. If you ask any chef, restaurateur or food provider in Manitoba, they will say the same thing. When it comes to serving food, especially locally sourced food, cost is a significant limitation. I feel like the hardest challenge for me has been if the, if the cost of like starting a restaurant or if the cost of like doing food in the most like 100% legitimate way, if that wasn't so difficult, I probably would like maybe have had a restaurant by now or done something like that. There's, you know, I've faced some, I face some barriers to doing what I want to do, and I think a lot of people who work with more wild foods have also felt that. I know, like, a lot of indigenous people, a lot of indigenous like cooks and chefs across Turtle Island are like, "Yo, this like wild meat rule needs to change because we're not allowed, you know, you're not allowed to serve wild meat to paying public." I've always struggled with legalities because I'm always doing something that's a little bit weird, so that's kind of kept me from maybe being able to pursue it full-time. I think we're slowly working towards a more kind of like realistic policy approach to food in Manitoba. I mean like the whole thing of like not having farmers markets within the city limits for how many years and then that changing and now yeah. see all the farmers markets that are happening. Yeah. Um, and yeah there's certainly a huge a gigantic push for more local, more like craft artisanal foods. Um, hopefully in time that's gonna yield some really great local products and then the imperative to make more realistic policies around them. Groups like the Woodlot Association of Manitoba are pushing for a wild food industry here in the province. They claim that many of the challenges of wild food harvesting are amplified by the ambiguity regarding statutes dealing with the serving and distribution of foraged foods. With the exception of the Wild Rice Act, which oversees the transportation and sale of wild rice, there is not much legislation regarding wild edibles. The Crown's Land Act and the Forest Health Protection Act don't address harvesting or foraging of wild foods on public lands and provincial forests. The Organic Agricultural Products Act regulates the certification, packaging, and label of organic farm products, but does not cover wild foods. The Fruit and Vegetable Sales Act covers the inspection, grading, packaging, marking, shipping, advertising, and selling of produce in the province, but the listed fruits and vegetables don't include wild foods. The Farm Products Marketing Act may be the only act to cover wild foods, but only because it defines a farm product as a product of agriculture or of a forest or lake or river. While the government of Manitoba has cautiously approved the selling of wild herbal products like St. John's wort, feverview, and milk thistle, they also insist that the herbs be stringently cultivated and not harvested in the wild as, quote, most species could not withstand the environmental impact of large-scale gathering. So where does that leave wild food? I asked Karen Froman if this kind of lack of regulation should be a concern for indigenous harvesters. 
I mean, it's a two-edged sword here, right? You know, so I mean, on the one hand, does that mean that as, as Indigenous people, we're yeah, we're free for all, right? You know, we can go out and harvest this stuff without interference, which is great, right? Which is what it should be. But at the same time, does that now also mean that settler populations also have free and unrestricted and uncontrolled access to these traditional foodstuffs and traditional medicines? Because both foods and medicines um, have teachings that go with them in terms of how and when and where you harvest. People are now being really secretive about where they go picking, right? You know, like, because they, do, they don't want people to know, right? Because it's getting over-harvested. So, I mean, like, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what the answer to that would be, right? You know, do we regulate, do we not regulate? You know, how do we, how do we deal with this, right? Um, do we have a massive education campaign, right? And if we do, how do we do that? You know, so I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions surrounding all of this, right? Um, you know, but to me in terms of, you know, food sovereignty, I think that regulation and rules around harvesting and things like that should also be indigenous led. While this ambiguity surrounding the cultivation and distribution of wild food may stifle the economic interest of those who wish to harvest, the lack of regulation also doesn't protect wild food from being over-harvested. As we're wrapping up on the food truck, I asked Anna Sigather what her take is on the renewed interest towards foraging. In and of itself, it's a really great, it's a great approach, it's a great way to think. But, you know, within capitalism and within, like, elite restaurant culture, I think things really do get fetishized. And it's just kind of like, doesn't end up benefiting too many people. So like I know in here, like in Turtle Island, where suddenly it's really trendy to like forage uh, like white sage or like traditional indigenous medicines that usually grow wild. Yeah, I've heard lots of stories where like, you know, people who have been picking these plants for generations are suddenly like finding Maybe people who shouldn't be there out in their in their like harvesting areas, going and just like harvesting and not understanding how much that they need to harvest or how much they should leave. So there is, yeah, there's there's problems that way, um, and I'm sure ecologically as well. Um, you don't want to when you're foraging something, especially if you're foraging something that's like a native plant. You don't want to take all of it. You want to leave some so that it will regenerate. If you're foraging weeds, you know, like this lamb's quarters, there's no worries. That thing is going to regenerate, so I don't need to worry about how much I take. While Sigrether sees herself as an advocate for bioregionalism, she is also critical of the limitations of the movement. I'm obviously um, interested in bioregional food and the human history and, and sort of set of skills and, and practices that come from that. But I also would consider myself a critic of it in a lot of ways. I think that. It's too easy to simplify our approach to food, and we are always looking for the next salvation, the next like fad thing. You know, we're, we've been the world's been globalized for a really long time, like since the first spice trade routes. So, like the idea that we're going to go back to like not having any trade is simply insane. And also, like I don't want to live in a world where there's no trade, and I don't want to live in a world where bioregionalism is like exploitative to people, marginalized peoples in those areas. Karen Froman also sees a potential for bioregionalism, but only if it includes indigenous communities. You know, we've got a good opportunity here, right? You know, because this is all still fairly new. I can see the potential 
for bioregionalism to support local indigenous foodways, uh, indigenous food sovereignty, and indigenous food industry, if it's done right, right, with indigenous voices and with indigenous peoples, you know, make, being active participants in this process. Recently, groups like the National Indigenous Economic Development Board are recommending changes to how wild foods are exchanged in Canada. They recommend establishing a framework to regulate the selling and marketing of wild food, along with the Wild Food Inspection Act to oversee sales and safety inspections co-managed by local Indigenous governments. Meanwhile, in British Columbia, the Sikwapak Nation has introduced a permit system to oversee morel picking on their traditional territory, hoping to encourage more Indigenous communities to follow suit. While the practice of foraging continues to grow, it's unknown if the wild food market will ever be viable here in Manitoba, or even desired if it leads to habitual over-harvesting and the disruption of the cultural practices of indigenous harvesters. New foragers have an obligation to respect the traditions of multi-generational foragers while learning new ways on how to eat foods in more ecological and sustainable ways. Before we pack it in and head out to our next location aboard the Manitoba Food History Truck, I ask Anna Sigather what her advice is for new foragers. Foraging advice, foraging 101 is know where you are, know, know where you're going to go, know like what that place is, not just to yourself but to other people. Make sure that you're going to be foraging in a place that's respectful to forage, first of all. Try to have a relationship with whoever owns that land, if somebody owns it, you know, so you can have a you know get the all clear about the soil quality about like soil contamination and make sure that it's safe and that nobody's like spraying pesticides and then the last thing is you know if you're foraging especially native plants be respectful and don't take very many of them let them regenerate um, learn about plant biology and learn about when it's the best time to forage them rather than you know forage them maybe after they've like been able to reproduce and if they if that doesn't matter if it's if you're foraging leaves or something yeah just try to be respectful and like consider all of the relationships involved try not to do it in a commodified way where you're just going and like getting something because yeah. it's in order I think for, like wild food has a potential to be paradigm shifting in how we consider food and relationships so yeah You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, produced, written, and narrated by myself, Kent Davies, hosted by Janice Thiessen and myself. A special thanks to Karen Froman for her help on this episode. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba food history content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the webpage. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.